So welcome everyone to part three of the forum series from First Presbyterian Church uh, featuring Dr. Dan Deffenbaugh and also featuring the Gospel of Matthew, your, your co-headlining acts uh, in this forum, Dan. Is that exciting for you? Yeah, that is. Great. <laughs> uh, so this is part three, taking a look at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Dr. Dan Deffenbaugh is our uh, scholar in residence at First Pres. I'm Damon. I'm one of the pastors. And I'm going to turn it over to Dan. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, uh, it's good seeing everybody. I, I trust you're all staying uh, safe and healthy. Uh, and looking forward to probably the most unique Thanksgiving that we're going to have. <laughs> um, but uh, I wanted to remind us where we've been with this study. Back in September, I did a um, just a one one off uh, class on Moses, and uh, it's part of a series that I wanted to call Bible Biographies. And I think it's really helpful that we were um, our next biography series was was the gospel of Matthew because there's a, a very strong connection between Moses and Matthew. Uh, if if you haven't picked it up already in our previous classes, uh, there's a very uh, pronounced Jewish <clears throat> tradition that Matthew is drawing upon uh, that's really in some ways for scholars has been kind of hard to identify and just how it fits into the early church. And so I want to talk about that a little bit today, but let's let's just first remember what we talked about with respect to Moses for those who may not have been a part of that um, that study. But Moses, being the great prophet of uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, through whom the covenant uh, with Israel was given to the Israelites uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, in well, the year would have been roughly around 1200 BCE. Uh, but this is, you know, part of the whole identity of the Jewish tradition, a wandering people uh, called by God to be literally, as uh, it was expressed to Abraham prior to this, to be a blessing to all the nations. It's really important, a blessing to all the nations. Now, this was the promise that was given to Abraham, that your offspring will number among the stars of the heavens, among the sands of the sea, uh, uh, and you will be a blessing. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Well, after, you know, many years, and Abraham would have lived, you know, we'd think around maybe 2000 BCE, but 800 years later, uh, it appears that the Hebrew people lost sight of that tradition and lost sight of that promise and found themselves uh, enslaved in Egypt. And Moses arises as the great liberator. And you know the story of how Moses confronts Pharaoh, uh, draws the people, brings them out of the land of Egypt, and uh, there at the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, delivers to them uh, the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. Literally, the word means instruction. A lot of people think that means law, but it, it simply means instruction. And that instruction is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the two tables of the laws are referred to, one of them referring to your responsibilities to God, the other referring to you through your responsibilities to your neighbor. Uh, four commandments for God, six commandments for your neighbor. Uh, but then the remaining books of the Pentateuch, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are uh, an extrapolation, an elaboration on those, um, on those commandments. Uh, yes, it says, you know, do not commit adultery, but what does that mean? Uh, yes, it says, you know, thou shalt not steal, but what, you know, what about particular situations? Just like human beings tend to do, they will elaborate on laws uh, that, uh, you know, need further elaboration. So if you read uh, Leviticus, if you read Numbers, you will see, uh, as well as in Exodus as well, something called the covenant code, you will see elaborations on ways in which these 10 commandments can be applied uh, in various situations. Now that covenant served as the uh, constitution for the people of Israel for the next <clears throat> 1,000 years. And of course, Israel goes through, uh, the people of Israel go through a, a number of political changes so that by the, by the time of Jesus, there are no, um, uh, there is no, uh, king anymore. Uh, Israel is basically a, a vassal state under the direction of various rulers, whether it be the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, the Romans, and a hope develops that eventually a new king would arise, one who would be like David, the king of Israel in 1000 BC, uh, anointed to be God's servant. This is the context in which we need to read Matthew. And for that matter, for, and we need to read all of the Gospels. Jesus is seen as that Mashiach is the uh, Aramaic word, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, Mashiach, Messiah. Uh, but he's not quite the Messiah that everybody has expected. And in fact, you know, Christians in the early church had to do their best to explain why it is that this Messiah actually dies on a cross. I mean, what an ignoble uh, way to go, right? Uh, that's not what we were expecting. We were expecting a king like David. We were expecting a palace up on the hill and a temple that's been rebuilt. And, you know, uh, we were expecting Jerusalem to be the city to which all the nations of the world would flock. Well, this Messiah was doing something completely different. And what Matthew is going to do is to try to place this new understanding of the Messiah in the context of the Jewish tradition that precedes uh, the coming of, of Jesus. If Matthew is about anything, it is ensuring that Jesus uh, is identified as part of the Jewish tradition. But this creates a lot of um, really interesting questions. Uh, for scholars, because well, frankly, there are just a lot of, uh, I don't want to call them contradictions, inconsistencies, places of tension uh, in Matthew that appear to, um, appear to be saying two different things. And today I, I want to talk about two aspects, well, really three of Matthew. One of, that, one of those is Matthew's relationship or Matthew's understanding of the law. How does Jesus relate to the law of Israel, the Torah? You know, is it a question where, you know, well, Jesus is the Messiah and therefore Jesus followers. If he is the Jewish Messiah, he must, they must naturally follow the Jewish law, right? Well, by the time Matthew is being written, the gospel Matthew is being written around 85 of the common era, about 
you know, 55 years after uh, Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Uh, by this time, Paul, the apostle Paul, has already, a generation prior to this, established the idea that the law has served its purpose and now a new covenant has been established in the, the blood of Christ. And this creates turmoil, of course, in the, in, the, uh, in the church because there were many, if I can say it this way, there were many Christianities in the first century. There were those that were mostly associated with Peter that were very Jewish oriented. And then there were those that were associated with Paul's uh, Gentile communities that were trying to demonstrate how the law was uh, still generally binding, but in, in new ways. For example, uh, circumcision. Uh, should, uh, if you're gonna become a Christian before you get baptized, should you become circumcised first, right? Because, you know, Jesus was a Jewish prophet, Jewish Messiah. Must you first become a Jew before you then become a follower of Christ through your baptism? That was a, a very big controversy in the church. Um, and as we read Matthew, we can probably get a pretty good idea that while Paul was on one end of the spectrum, Matthew was probably going to be on the other end of the spectrum. And we, it's really difficult to un, for scholars to understand where Matthew is coming from. And I wanted to uh, take today and talk about different aspects of Matthew. Let me share my screen here with you. Um, with respect to uh, his understanding of Jesus as the new Moses. Um, one thing that's helpful to, to understand is that uh, just by the way that Matthew sets up his, uh, his, his gospel, there are so uh, five discourses, so to speak, and we'll, we'll be looking at just two today, but the five discourses seem to put us in mind of the five books of the Torah, the five discourses of Jesus teaching about how it is to be a follower uh, of, of this new Messiah. How is it that uh, you know, your, your faithfulness uh, takes action? So clearly Jesus uh, is, is going to be uh, elaborated, he's going to be uh, identified as the new Moses. And, and this becomes pretty clear when you see how the first discourse is introduced. Um, but before I, I move on, let me stop and see if there are any questions that I can uh, ask. And, and Damon, I do want to be aware of our time because I know you've been slipping out early. Uh, or we've been going over time and it, that has been convenient for you. Are there any questions? Okay. Damon Jensen Heitman is there. Let me move back to where we were. Um, the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, here is Jesus being uh, portrayed as, again, a Moses who is uh, bringing a law to the people speaking in um, actually just small little aphorisms. We're not really sure if the sermon was delivered this way. Most likely this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? Like a, a praise, an overview of a much larger sermon that Jesus would have been preaching, blessed are the meek. But the context is really important here. Jesus 
on a mountain, speaking to the people, uh, giving direction in a way that's very similar to what we might expect from the Ten Commandments. Now, the thing about this is uh, Jesus gives nine commandments here. There are nine blesseds, right? Uh, there's not the perfect ten, and I don't know what the reason for that is, actually. But this is material that comes from, um, you might remember there, when Matthew is written, there is the Gospel of Mark, and then there's a Q material, and then Matthew has its own, has its own information uh, from a, a community called M. Uh, and this is material that's found in Luke. The Sermon on the Mount can be found in Luke. However, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Jesus is speaking essentially to Gentiles in a place called Tyre and Sidon, and he's on a flat level plain, right? Well, here Jesus is, you know, certainly uh, speaking in Galilee uh, and Jewish territory uh, to people uh, about uh, this new understanding of the law. And this, this introduces the so-called first discourse in Matthew. Um, I'm going to ask you to excuse me for a minute because this little critter right here is interrupting me way too much. So I'm going to lock him away. <laughs> but then, sorry for that interruption. <laughs> After this, I, I want to. Uh, I want to focus on something that uh, that is kind of a conundrum here because Jesus says one thing then appears to just turn around and do exactly the opposite thing of what he just said. So I'd like to read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And this is directly after the Sermon on the Mount, right? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that seems like a pretty pro-law, pro-Torah, pro-I'm-not-changing-anything-about-the-Jewish-tradition statement, uh, which, which we would expect from this Jewish Messiah, right, who is coming uh, to announce uh, a, a new day for the Jewish people. But then, remember, he's saying, we're not, I'm not changing anything about the law. But then after this, Jesus takes each of the Ten Commandments, or many of the Ten Commandments, and amends them. <laughs> Which is, wait a minute, this is kind of a head scratcher, Jesus. You introduce this by saying, I'm not changing anything about the law. But then you go and say, but this is, this is how you need to start thinking about the law. And so you, you, in this discourse, you see, hear a number of, you have heard it said. In other words, the, the law traditionally says. And then he concludes by saying, but I say to you, in other words, this is a new way of looking at the law. So look at how uh, 
this uh, proceeds, and I'll try not, I try not to read all of them, but you will get the picture fairly quickly. You've heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said that those, in, by those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be uh, liable to judgment. Okay, that's, that's classic right out of the Torah, right? I think that's the uh, fifth, sixth commandment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to the court. Also, you've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone <clears throat> who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Uh, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is not one of the Ten Commandments, but this was a common practice that a man could divorce his wife for whatever reason. She doesn't give him children. Uh, you know, uh, of course, adultery being a problem. Frankly, if he just gets tired of her, he can write her a, certific a certificate of, uh, of divorce. So you've heard that it said, um, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You've heard that it was said that to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or on. So you, you see a number of situations in which Jesus is taking the traditional interpretation of the law and giving it a new twist. So uh, he's not abolishing it, of course, but he's certainly not sticking to the traditional interpretation. So how do we explain this so-called new interpretation of the law if Jesus is not you know, trying to uh, you know, abolish the law? Well, the people have said there, you know, there are two ways that we can look at this. And the second one is one that we're going to uh, look at in terms of how Matthew was probably uh, written and uh, what ideas were in mind of the author of Matthew as it was written. Uh, the first approach is that, well, what you might have here are two levels of tradition that have been incorporated into the gospel itself. One that has Jesus as a very, very staunch conservative, you know, do not change the law person, but then another tradition that has him, you know, amending things about the law. That's uh, one way of looking at it. We know that the gospel wasn't written all at once. Nobody sat down and, you know, you know, chapter one, verse one, and, and wrote it all out. But what we're seeing here is a, a patchwork, a collection of traditions that developed over time, uh, over 45, 55 years of time. 
some earlier traditions may have had Jesus as being very, very staunchly Jewish. But then as Paul's theology began to influence the Petrine churches, the churches of Jerusalem, uh, some of that uh, uh, very conservative view of Jesus started to loosen up a bit. And we might be seeing aspects, two different aspects of that Jesus. But the other uh, comes back, the other interpretation, one that we're gonna to follow today, comes back to uh, what we might call a, a temporal solution. Uh, and it comes back to Matthew's uh, introduction of, of Jesus uh, with the law here, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And so let me read the part that's important here. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here's the important thing. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of, the, of a letter will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, uh, until all is accomplished, not one stroke will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So scholars think that what may be happening here is that there is a kind of a two-tiered system. While Jesus is the Messiah walking on earth, the law is still uh, being held as, uh, you know, that which should be followed. Not one stroke should be taken away from it. But when all has been accomplished, says Jesus, then there is a new way of looking at being uh, uh, a Christian in the world. Uh, this is one in which the, the law is going to be um, less, stringent, uh, less stringently followed. So we're looking ahead then in Matthew to this time of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, this is the time in which uh, a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, as it's referred to in Matthew, is going to begin. So though it appears that there might be some contradictory, uh, uh, some contradictory aspects to Matthew about how Jesus regards the law, this tends to uh, clarify it a little bit. While Jesus was living on earth prior to his crucifixion, he was staunchly uh, conservative conservative about following the law. In fact, in one place, he even tells the, uh, the apostles, you know, do what the scribes and Pharisees tell you, you know, they're the, they're the, uh, you know, they're the expert here. But after the resurrection, when the kingdom of heaven has been at least announced, has at least been initiated, there's a new way of being in the world. And one of the new ways of being in the world is going to really up and the way it has been in terms of what it meant to be Jewish. You're no longer going to be Jewish in the way you have been because now there is going to be this new aspect of the church, this aspect of the kingdom of heaven. The covenant before was a covenant for a people who were going to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. Now everyone is a potential uh, recipient of that blessing. Basically, Jesus introduces a time period in which the Gentiles are gonna become part of the church. 
And that helps us to understand another confusing aspect of, of Matthew's uh, gospel as well. So let me, let me stop, see if there are any comments or any questions. I always feel like I have to go over things rather quickly, but some of you may feel like I draw things out way too much. <laughs> I'm not seeing anything. Well, as I pointed out, I think two times ago, two weeks ago, uh, this idea of how uh, the kingdom of heaven and how Jesus relates to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, or in Greek, ethnoi, uh, which is where we get our word ethnic from, uh, the nations. Whenever we, re refer, when we, whenever we hear the nations referred to in um, scripture, uh, basically we are referring to the Gentiles, anyone who is not Jewish, anyone who is not bar mitzvah, son of the, or son or daughter of the covenant. Um, and, you know, uh, Jews did not have necessarily a terribly derogatory understanding of the Gentiles. Frankly, they kind of pitied them um, and perhaps could have uh, admired them because according to their tradition, the Gentiles only had to follow seven basic humanitarian laws in order to be accounted as righteous. You know, don't, don't kill, don't co commit adultery, uh, you know, certain basic laws that every human being should recognize as meet and right. But Jews, on the other hand, because they're the chosen people, the light of the nations had to follow 613 laws, right? Well, what's it like now? Uh, <clears throat> Matthew is one of those gospels that is a transition gospel. And it's very confusing to understand where Jesus is coming from because we can point out places in the gospel where he has rather pejorative references to the Gentiles, right? He sees them as outsiders, Matthew 18, uh, as immoral, you know, not really knowing what is required of them by God, having to have, you know, only limited direction uh, uh, or only having to comply with limited uh, commandments from God in order to be seen as righteous, basically people to be pitied almost. Uh, they don't know how to pray. Uh, many of these pejorative references. Um, and, and I'll tell you the most pejorative here in a second. They are seen as on, a, on the same level as with Samaritans. Samaritans were you know, not terribly well-liked among, uh, uh, among the Jews. But at the same time, they're, they're positive images of the Gentiles, right? We talked about the Magi. Uh, these were most likely Zoroastrian astrologers uh, who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, uh, who come bearing gifts, who are the first to announce, the, the first to recognize Jesus as Messiah. You might know the story of the centurion at Capernaum, who has a servant who's, who is... Um, was sick and he says, Jesus, can you heal my servant? And, and I don't require you, Jesus, to, you know, to go to my house, it's a long way away. But if you just, I'm a, I'm a person who commands hundreds of soldiers. And if I say something, something will, you know, they will make it happen. And so all you do need to do, Jesus, is to say, 
hey, uh, this guy's going to be healed, you know, from this spot 200 miles away or however far it was. Uh, and, and he'll be healed. And Jesus looks at him with, you know, amazement. You know, I've never, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Uh, and we also have seen places in the genealogy, right? Where, remember last time we were talking about how uh, these little side comments were added about uh, certain women or certain people in the genealogy who were, you know, singled out, Ruth being one of them, who was a Gentile woman. Uh, uh, there are indications that the Gentiles have been part of the plan all along. So we have conflict going on. They're pejorative references, they're positive images. But here's the one that's the most interesting. How do we reconcile Matthew chapter 10, verses five through six with, well, and I should also put in here, Matthew 15, 21 through 27. I'll just tell you about that one, but I won't, I'll read Matthew 10, five through six for you. Um, how do we reconcile this with what we know of to be called the Great Commission? The Great Commission. So let me read Matthew 10, five through six. And it's just after the, the apostles have been named, they've been identified as people who are going to carry out the work of Christ. And now he gives them a commission. This is what I want you to do. These 12, Jesus set out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment, and on and on. Um, don't go to the Gentiles. That's, that's not what I'm calling you to do. Don't go to those Samaritans. You are supposed to be apostles to the people of Israel. Well, this, this sounds, you know, rather... Uh, bewildering, if, you know, if we still hold to what we know of about what comes later. Uh, when we talk about the Great Commission, Matthew's uh, conclusion to the whole gospel, but there's another place here too, and I'll just uh, relay it here, just uh, in Matthew 15, uh, a Canaanite woman comes to him and says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus rather um, almost abruptly and rudely says, I've not come for, uh, I've not come for the, the, uh, the Gentiles, but for the lost children of Israel. The woman says, yes, but even, you know, even the dogs get the crumbs from the, the master's table. Gentiles were often referred to as dogs by, by Jews. Uh, so the reference there to dogs. And then Jesus almost uh, begrudgingly heals her daughter. Not the kind of Jesus that we, we <laughs> tend to uh, picture, you know, at least not the one I learned about when I was a kid in Sunday school. But what about Matthew 28, 16 through 20? And this is the glorious conclusion of, um, of the gospel, right? This appearing only in Matthew, by the way, this is so-called M material, uh, but it is the great commission. Jesus dies on the cross, 
he's resurrected, he appears to his apostles, uh, and then on a mountain in Galilee, he uh, ascends into heaven, but prior to doing so, he gives them this commission. I'm reading from verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples, 11, why? Well, you know, Judas has already committed his crime and by this time may have already, you know, committed suicide. Uh, by the way, also not, uh, also rather contradictory uh, references in the Bible. Some people say he falls in a field and his guts fall out and the other people say he hangs himself. Um, I mean, two different references, one in Acts and the other in John, I believe. Um, I'll check that, make sure. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Again, back on a mountain, right? Here's Moses, the new Moses on the mountain. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So much about this conclusion just wraps up the gospel so nicely. Let me start with the last and uh, first here. And remember, I am with you always until the end of the age. Uh, that recalls what we saw earlier in Matthew in chapter one. Uh, this is, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him and name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the conclusion of Matthew is a reminder of what uh, you know, was a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. God is with us. God is present in the church and going out into uh, the nations to preach the good news. This is entirely different from what we've just heard from Jesus prior to this. The only difference we can imagine is that this happens after Jesus' death and resurrection and not before. So it gives credence to our, 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 the lens through which we're trying to interpret Matthew, that there are really two nows that are happening, as I've heard one Catholic scholar refer to it. One of the now, uh, nows that we're looking at is the now that happens in the moment when Jesus is talking to his disciples and teaching uh, apostles and, and teaching uh, those prior to his crucif crucifixion. This is what I want you to do now. Don't go to the Jews or don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. But there is the other now of people who will be reading the gospel of Matthew henceforth after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, what is important is that you go to the nations, go and proclaim the gospel in all the world. Uh, this is the true mission of the church. Those who are called out, by the way, the word church being used only in Matthew, it's Matthew material. 
this appears, this great commission appears only in Matthew. So, you know, if there were any doubt as to whether or not Jesus was just a Jewish Messiah, Matthew clears it up right here. But there appears to be two missions of Jesus, one prior to his crucifixion and resurrection, and the other much more universalizing afterwards. He, he does not set aside the law and the prophets. You know, he said, even in the first now, I'm not going to do that. However, in the second now, there's going to be a little bit more, uh, a, a more nuanced way of understanding the law when, when that happens. So Matthew's terribly, terribly complex uh, in this respect. And we, you know, we, we have to read it through our later theological lens, uh, knowing that Jesus all along has in mind the fact that the way that the Jews will be a blessing to all the nations is by incorporating all the nations into this new covenant. So I, I wanna say one more thing about this and then I wanna give you opportunity to maybe ask some questions. We're closing in, in our, on our time. Um, this by the way is the only place in scripture where we can get even the slightest reference to what is going to become a foundational theological concept or idea for the church. And that is the Trinity. Nowhere in scripture is the Trinity referenced. The closest we can come is to this imagery of how to baptize. We'll baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three gods, well, you know, that creates a problem, right? Uh, you know, are we talking about three gods? Later theologians are gonna have to come up with this in, in their apologetics to try to explain, oh, why is that not three gods, right? Uh, and they later arrive at this idea called the Trinity, the three in one. Uh, three persons, one substance. Uh, but the presence of Jesus in the church is a way that the church is in, enlivened, so, this, so to speak, that this, um, that this mission to the world is not just going to be a mission of human beings going out and teaching of their own will. <laughs> they are going to be representatives of Christ. In fact, they are the body of Christ, as Paul makes so clearly. They, their human broken bodies, enlivened by the spirit. I love the image in John where Jesus breathes the spirit into the church, um, will be able to represent the kingdom of heaven now on earth. And so um, this is where I will stop for a minute or two and see if there are any questions about this. Great Commission has been so foundational to missionary work throughout the world. This is it. This is the, the fulcrum on which this whole thing, uh, I should, the, the axle, <laughs> the axis upon which this whole thing revolves. Any questions or comments? Well, then let me emphasize one last thing that in Matthew, all of this hinges upon the idea that Matthew sees Jesus not only as a Messiah, 
but as an apocalyptic prophet. Jesus comes proclaiming the end of a, an old age and the beginning of a new. And this is not going to, to uh, be something that happens way off in the distance. Uh, there, as Matthew is being written, there are signs that this new age is about to begin. It has been initiated with the death and resurrection of Christ, but Christ is going to return. A new heaven and a new earth, literally, will that will a new Jerusalem will descend from the heavens, as we know in, in Revelation, and this will be the time of reckoning. A judgment is coming. Jesus has already established himself as he in whom all authority has been granted. Um, uh, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Uh, this is the context, Jesus speaking as an apocalyptic prophet in which we need to read the text for today's sermon. And the last three Sundays, we've been looking at the last of Jesus' discourses. And the last of Jesus' five discourses, first one being the Sermon on the Mount, the others being teaching discourses, and this one being the fifth, remember, modeled after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the concluding discourse on what is yet to happen and what we can expect in the near future. Uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 24, uh, we have a sense of how, of, of what we can expect when Jesus' return is about to happen. And this is, um, I should say, uh, this is not M material, but this is lifted almost word for word right out of Mark. Mark chapter 13, if you were to read as I read some of this, if you were to open Mark chapter 13 and read what I'm reading here out of Matthew, you would see that this goes right down the line, straight down the line. Um, but this is the introduction that we were not given to the two previous uh, liturgical readings for the last two Sundays. This, the story of the, the, the virgins with their, their lamps, the, the bridesmaids who kept their lamps uh, well-oiled. Prior to that, I can't remember what the other one was. Sorry. Uh, oh, the 10 bridesmaids. Oh, and then the, yeah, and the slaves, the slaves who uh, keep their masters, um, you know, keep their masters uh, talents, right? And the one buries it and does not, uh, is not rewarded for that. But prior to those, parables being told, Jesus gives a, uh, this prediction of how the world is going to, you know, conclude. And you will know that he is going to return when you see these things happening. Uh, I should say this, uh, that scholars who have read Mark chapter 13 and have read it carefully believe that that chapter was probably augmented, if not written, or created precisely when the Jews uh, witnessed the destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era at the hands of Titus and the Romans. Uh, it was a terrible siege. 
Uh, I think Jerusalem was, was held at siege for, um, for two years. And at that time, you know, basically the Romans just held out and said, well, we'll starve them out. You know, they have, they have to have water. Well, for, fortunately, Jerusalem is built over spring. So they had, you know, they had water, but they, they kept them, uh, you know, inside the city without any food for a, a long period of time. And, and the Roman soldiers just got so upset with them that, that when it, the order finally came to take the city, they went in with a vengeance, the Roman soldiers did. And the first thing they did is they wanted to demonstrate that their Roman God, the Roman gods and their emperor was far more powerful than the God of these Jews, these pesky, you know, troublesome Jews. And they utterly destroyed the temple. Uh, and there were many followers of Jesus who witnessed that destruction at that time. Uh, so many most scholars suggest that this, uh, these words of Jesus are embellished, you might say, by uh, witnesses who saw the destruction of this temple. So um, Jesus came out of the temple and was going away and his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. And then they asked him, uh, then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? These stones, truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Uh, when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and tell us, when will this be? And what will the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, what will that be? Jesus answered them, beware that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes. By the way, Vesuvius recently, uh, you know, would have recently happened at this time. In various places, all this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. So when you see the desolating sacrilege, Jesus says, this is the referred to in Daniel, standing in the holy place as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains as happened when the Romans destroyed the temple. The one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house the one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Well, guess what? Two things here. The temple was destroyed. The city was besieged on the Sabbath and was besieged in the winter uh, uh, by, by Titus. Not only that, there are horrendous stories of Romans in their bitterness towards the Jews, cutting open women's bellies and pulling out infant children, pulling out, you know, the fetus, taking young children. And I, I, I hate to say this, but the Romans were not very, not very happy people when you broke their control. Uh, taking young children, throwing them in the air and catching them on spears. This is how 
badly the Romans wanted to destroy the Jews, but held them at bay for this long period of time. This reference in Mark, which is also copied by Matthew, appears to have been a reflection uh, that happened after the fact. There's so much historical detail here that uh, it's almost as if somebody witnessed the destruction of the temple. Um, now others will say, as my students often did, well, Jesus was God. He could predict all of this as happening. Uh, and I, I certainly wanna hold, hold that open as, uh, as a possibility as well. Uh, but if we are looking at this text as a text that also has a human hand written in it, it leaves open the possibility that, you know, these events were embellished by a witnessing a firsthand testimony of seeing the temple destroyed. But today <clears throat> we will read from chapter 25 and I don't wanna spend the time reading it because, but there is one place that I want to point out. Um, we talked about the, the virgins, you know, keeping their oils, uh, keeping their lamps oiled. We talked about the slaves who have been given the talents by their master. These were uh, teachings that Jesus was giving to the church itself to his own followers, to his apostles, be ready for this day. Don't let your, you know, don't let your, your oil run out. Prepare for it. Invest, as you might say, uh, in, in the coming of Christ. But when, when we read Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats, the last judgment, which, by the way, has, has played such a role in Christian art, you know, during the Renaissance especially, uh, this, by the way, on, on the screen is, uh, as you probably know, is Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. Jesus here in the, in the middle, looking much like Apollo. You see, he does not have his beard. Uh, Michelangelo <laughs> uh, had a lot of Greek uh, mythological references in the Sistine Chapel. But separating the sheep from the goats, you know, taking those uh, on Jesus' right-hand side into heaven, and condemning those on his left into hell. Um, other images, um, very clear. Those on the right over here, Jesus' right, taken into heaven. Those on his left being condemned to hell. And then it real, uh, in many of the uh, Renaissance cathedrals, excuse me, medieval cathedrals, this is Chart Cathedral. When you would walk into the church, you would usually walk, this is called the tympanum, uh, the, the entrance to the church, you would usually walk under some sort of stone carving that had this reference, Matthew 25, as its subject. Here's Jesus separating the sheep from the goats at Shark Cathedral, those below going off into the mouths of, of, of hell, and those uh, to the, his right uh, being taken into heaven. Um, but this reference I want to make here and, and to point out to you and give you something to think about as we uh, hear the sermon today, who is Jesus speaking to? Uh, is this a parable that's being told to the church or is it a parable that has a warning that's being offered to somebody else? And it, the key to this is in the very first couple of verses, the very first line. When the Son of Man comes, says Jesus, 
and the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a sh shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then you know how this goes on. You know, when did we see you hungry and not give you and, and give you food? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, so you did it unto me. And then the goats will come and say, hey, when did we see you hungry and not give you something? And when you did not do it to the least of my brethren. But the nations here, the church has often uh, seen this as a, a goad towards ethics, right? Uh, towards social justice, how we should uh, be the church in the world. But the fact that it's the nations that are standing before the son of man at the time of judgment suggests that these might be people that are not held under the covenant at all, right? Why is it that Jesus is speaking to the nations? Could this be that this is a, a warning, you might say, to uh, those to whom Jesus' disciples are going to go out in the Great Commission? They're going to go to the Gentile nations, and they will either be refuted and reviled, or they will be accepted. And remember, Jesus in his previous commissioning told his disciples, don't take anything with you when you go out and, you know, and preach in the world, you know, let, let the towns that you go into be the places where you are, uh, you're fed. Uh, you are not going to even don't, don't even carry an extra cloak with you. So you're going out to the world as, as sheep among, among the wolves, we might say. Some scholars are suggesting or have suggested that Jesus is talking to the Gentiles to whom the followers of Christ will soon be going. And they will either accept them with open arms, feed them, give them drink, perhaps visit them in prison for the fact, you know, due to the fact that they've been thrown in prison because of their, as Christians often were, we see when we study our book of Revelation, they were, you know, getting uh, accused by the, by the synagogues being, you know, heretics. Uh, I don't want to undermine how this uh, text has been used in the church because it's absolutely essential to helping us understand our social justice, our calling towards social justice. This fits into, you know, what was required of the covenant with Moses, welcome the stranger within your gates, take care of the widow, the poor and the orphan. Uh, this was essential to the covenant. But also here is another nuance to the text that we don't often have um, access to. Jesus speaking to the Gentiles who are about to receive Christian missionaries following the great commission, you will be judged as to how you accept these uh, missionaries into your, your church, so, or into your, uh, uh, into your presence. So that leads us right to one minute before we are supposed to end. And I want to, to give Damon his time to go do what he needs to do, but are there questions or comments that you would like to make uh, about this? It concludes our study of Matthew. Well, once again, I'm completely
clear and, and there, no confusion whatsoever and you can <laughs> perfect understanding. Oh, Anne, Anne looks like she's saying something, but you're muted, Anne. No, I'm actually not saying anything to Stan. You really have been quite clear. I've, I've, oh. I found this very helpful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Well, as you, uh, as you do listen to the, the text this morning, uh, listen with a, you know, an informed ear as to, to what's happening on the context, uh, the apocalyptic context, the uh, Great Commission uh, coming just a few uh, chapters afterwards. And with that, I will conclude um, our time together. Damon has probably already taken off. Uh, the next time I'll teach a form, in, uh, form, it will be during Lent, and we'll be doing something on the Eisenheim altarpiece. Uh, it'll be a, a long uh, four sessions, four or five sessions, uh, but I hope you will find it enlightening. Uh, so thank you, everyone. Yeah. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Dan.